Well, good morning again. Okay, let me, let's start over. Good morning again. There we go. If you weren't here in the beginning, my name is Brandon. I am the uh, pastor of what we call Preaching and Vision here at, um, at Sojourn Heights. And I wanted to say a quick happy Mother's Day to all of you uh, moms and whoop, one person excited about that. All right. So happy Mother's Day. Uh, there we go. To all of you uh, moms and uh, and moms to be, I don't know if you know this. Uh, if you're new, you might not know this. Uh, we, uh, if you see a married woman around you, it's like 60% shot she's pregnant. And so we've got a baby boom happening right now in Sojourn, and so we're excited about that. Uh, we love it. But I, I wanted to, I wanted to stop and, and say this before we move on uh, that I know there are uh, many inside of our community, inside of this uh, little church family who are struggling with infertility. Uh, many who. Uh, many is probably an overstatement, but some certainly who have lost uh, their mothers recently. Uh, and I wanted, before we start the sermon, to just say that we love you, the Lord loves you, the Lord is for you, the Lord is with you. Let's get started. We're in the middle of a series um, that we're calling Kingdom Expanded, Kingdom Expansion. I don't really know, expanded expansion, doesn't matter. Uh, seven weeks going through selected passages in the book of uh, of Acts, and and so Jesus came and uh, and he and he started teaching about this thing called the kingdom of God, and then the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, they they walk through the narrative of Jesus' life, and then in Acts you have the the birth and expansion of the church, um, and you see this kingdom of God that Jesus came and preached about. You see it begin to really expand and take shape and penetrate the the known world of the of the day, and so we've walked through kind of some highlighted passages. So we started looking at the ascension of Christ and how that kind of unlocked uh, or pulled the pin on the grenade, if you will, of the kingdom of God. And then we, um, and then from there we went to Pentecost where the spirit of God came in, uh, in power. And then from there we, we talked about repentance and how a repentant people, how the kingdom is expanded through our repentance. And then from there last week, uh, Taylor, uh, our, our church planter who's starting Sojourn, uh, Sojourn Montrose did such a killer job talking about the power of the name, the name of Jesus and, and then today, uh, we're just going to pick up and keep going. And so, uh, since it's Mother's Day, uh, and some of you guys are new, and, and we uh, we haven't met, uh, I thought I would introduce my kids to you. And so, uh, I wanted to do that. I wanted to start with this. And so, my uh, my five year old daughter, uh, her name is Isley. Uh, that's her. That's my five year old. Okay, let's. Okay, can you pull the picture off? When, when they go up, I want a whole lot more, ah, uh, ooh, over them, all right? I, I have much higher expectations. Okay, this is my five-year-old daughter, Isley. There we go. That's better. That's better. All right, and then this is my four-year-old son, Easton. Okay, pretty good. Uh, and then this is my 14-month-old daughter, uh, Amelia. Yeah, isn't that great? Now, if you... Uh, if, if you uh, have kids ever were a kid, uh, you, you know this, right? You, you know this about kids. Um, sharing does not come natural, right? It's just not innate instinctive, right? And so if you were to guess of my three kids, the ones I just showed you, uh, who is the worst about sharing? The answer would be this one, that one. It's not even close, all right? And so, and I don't mean in like the cute 14-month-old, oh, look at the little baby kind of way. I, I mean, if she has something and you take it from her, uh, she will scream, she might even hit you, uh, and she will double fist the floor in anger, right? 
And now, uh, and in fact, she, last night at dinner, my wife and I were sitting there. My wife took something from her, um, and she's in her little, uh, you know, uh, the chair where they eat. I don't know what it's called. And she started, like, pounding it. It scared my wife. She's like, my God, what happened? I was like, you've never seen this? This is just our daughter. It's what she does. And so, and so here's the, the question. Here's the question. Where did she learn that? From me? No. Her mom? Maybe. I love you, Amanda. Happy Mother's Day. <laughs> Here's the answer. She, she didn't learn it. it. It's an innate, instinctive, intrinsic, uh, what's mine is mine, right? It's how we're born. It's how she was born. It's how my other two kids were born. They've just learned to manage and learn uh, to, to cope and act like they're not uh, the spoiled brats that they, um, that they can be. It's a basic presupposition about life uh, and how life should work that we're born into. That's what mine is mine and what's yours is yours. It's actually, uh, it's actually an exceptionally Western way of seeing, uh, a way of seeing the world. And here's what's going to happen in our text, the, the text that, that Drew just read for us. The, this sacred literature, this Bible of ours, it's just going to say no. It's simply going to say no, not Let's talk about it, not I get where you come up with that. It's just going to say no, not in this family, not in this people. It's simply going to say no. See, the way of Christ, it's going to say, uh, is marked by a radically countercultural, radically generous people. The way of Christ is marked by a kingdom-expanding generosity. And so we're going to look at it. Acts 4 verse 32 says this. Now the full number of those who had believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And so here's, here's, here's what's happening. Here's kind of the scene, if you will. This group of men and women, it says they believed and then they were of one heart and soul. So much so that they looked at their possessions and they had their view of their possessions completely reoriented from mine to ours. They, they had what's known as a strong group view of the world, of their life and of their possessions, that them, their life and their possessions belong to the community first and to them second. This is radically countercultural and it's what was happening in Acts 4 that the life of this community, this early church, had so collided with Christ that when it says they believed, what that's saying is this community of men and women had their life so impacted by Jesus and that that led to them giving themselves over to one another to the degree that they viewed their possessions as belonging to the group first. It's beautiful. But right up front, I need to teach. I need, I need, to, I need to kind of pause sermon, if you will. I need to teach on... Uh, on something because um, I need to teach on how to read the Bible, how we interpret the Bible so that we can faithfully read, faithfully interpret, faithfully apply uh, this passage. Because it said a minute ago uh, in what we just read that they had all things in common. And that doesn't mean uh, that they all dressed the same. Praise the Lord, right? In verse 34, that was a filter right there. And I did a good job. Uh, in verse 34, it says that they sold their 
fields and houses. And, they, uh, and, and so what, what it doesn't mean, what's not happening in this passage is, uh, what's not happening is that they all sold their house, moved into a one-bedroom apartment, and lived, you, you know, commune-style, a few hundred people in 800 square feet. That's not, that's not what's happening. And I, and I know that because um, we'll explain more about it in, when we hit verse 34. But, but there's no rebuke later in the passage or later in the New Testament anywhere uh, for owning a house. There's no correction for owning a home. In fact, later in Acts, houses and homes are used strategically for the advancement of, of the gospel. And so when we look at the Bible, there, there are passages that are what we call descriptive and passages that are, that are what we call prescriptive. So a descriptive passage is this. Paul, uh, Paul, who would become a Christian here in a few chapters, uh, who wrote most of the New Testament, Paul went on three, uh, at least three that we know of, uh, missionary journeys, right? There are scenes in the book of Acts where people get baptized into a river. These are describing, right? They're describing what Paul did and where he went. They're describing baptisms being done in a, in a river. It's not a call. It's not a prescription to you that we are told to go out on missionary journeys throughout Asia, if you will. It's not you are told to baptize in a river. It's describing events that happened. But then in the Bible, there are also prescriptive texts. There are passages that, that prescribe, do this, don't do this, right? So think, be holy. Think the one another's in the scriptures. Uh, these are calling us to live explicitly a certain way. And this passage, this, this text that we just read is a descriptive passage. But descriptive passages... Descriptive passages still can have gospel principles underneath it. And so when we look at this text, we, we need to ask, what's the gospel principle? Like, what, what's that gospel principle that sits underneath this passage? And, and on the surface, on the surface, the gospel principle looks like, it appears like, it's how they handled money and how they handled possessions. That's actually not it. The gospel principle is that they were of one heart and soul that they were so united to one another that the Bible uses a phrase that it only used here. Nowhere else in the Bible is one heart and soul used in the scriptures. That their faith in Christ, their communal collision with Christ, so united this people that the Bible describes them as one heart and soul, that they had given themselves fully to this community. And that overflowed into generosity with possessions. The gospel principle is that they were of one heart and soul. And that's the gospel principle for us today. And so we need to define heart and soul. Like what does it mean? So when you read uh, the word heart in the Bible, I want you to think this. I want you to think emotions, will, um, desire. If you want to put it in a phrase, uh, do it this way. What makes you tick? Like that's your heart. Like what is it that makes you tick? That's your heart. If you want to talk about soul, it's the it's the center of the inner human life. And so when we put these two together, that we're of one heart and soul, you, you see this, that at the center of the, the inner life of this community was a unity of desire and will. It can be said this way. That what makes me tick makes us tick. What makes us tick makes me tick. When they were so united, in their heart and soul, that what made one of them tick made them all tick. What made them all tick made one of them tick. This is what it means to be united in heart and soul. And what does this describe? What, what does this describe? 
It describes the ideal family. One commentator said it this way, said, no, what, what's being described here is something akin to family duties. That when, when, when they took care of one another and when we take care of one another, we are simply doing what families do. We're simply doing what families do. And so what is Luke saying to Sojourn? Luke, the, the author of Acts, what, what is he saying to Sojourn? What would he say to us right now? What do we, what do we think that this, that this would, would be saying to us? I think it would be saying to us that let generosity of heart and soul, let your communal collision with a person and work of Christ overflow into generosity of possessions with one another. Live out, pursue living out the ideal family in this family of God, this family that is the church. That's what he'd be saying to us right now. And now many of us, many of us hear that and we go, but you know what, man, listen, I, I uh, including myself, we, we, we didn't, I didn't exactly come from the ideal family, right? I, I know we've got a lot of moms in here, a lot of parents in here. Uh, my parents listen to this online and I, I'll tell you, I did not come from the ideal family, right? There, the, the, um, it wasn't exactly Brady Bunch, leave it to Cleaver around my household. Our, our carrots weren't bright orange all the time. I didn't have a model for this growing up. And this is why, this is why, if, if I could, this is why our neighborhood parishes are so important. This is why if you want to plug into life at Sojourn, you have to plug into a neighborhood parish because we are meant to learn how to live this out together in a crucible of community. You are designed, you are not going to learn how to live this out coming on a Sunday, gathering, which we love Sundays. I I love this. Staff meeting on Monday, favorite part of the week. Second favorite part of the week, this. I love Sundays. But you're not going to learn to live this out coming and listening on a Sunday and then going home alone every week. You are meant to live this out in a context, the crucible of community. But even if you did come from that ideal family, right, bright veggies and Brady Bunch, um, you're you're, going to struggle. It's not going to be innate to you. You are still born in the same reality that I was born into, the same reality that my kids were born into. It's a Genesis 3 reality that we always will struggle to outgrow what's mine is mine. And in Genesis 3, 5, and 6, this is the heart of the fall. This is, this is where everything went sideways in, in creation. Genesis 1 and 2, it's good. Genesis 3, right at the beginning of the story, serpent talking to Eve. says, for God knows that when you, eat of the, when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and it was a delight to the eyes. And that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her. And he ate. A- Adam and Eve, at the heart of the fall was this. I want to be like God. I want to have what God has. At the heart of the fall was greed. And if we... Uh, if, if if we had a moment of honest confession together, at the core of each one of our hearts is greed. Now, you, you might hear that, and you might say, man, not, like, not, not me, right? Not, not me. I'm, 
I wouldn't be labeled as greedy, right? You might not say, I, I don't think I would. If we sat down, we had a convo, we talked about finances, uh, I don't think you would label me as greedy. But let me, let me tell you this. Let me tell you what, I, um, what I've always struggled with. I've always struggled with discontentment. Always. I've, I've always struggled um, with, uh, with comparison. If you struggle with comparison, if you find yourself fantasizing about living someone else's life, which, by the way, is a side note, at, at the core, at the core of an affair is a fantasy. It's living a different life. At, at the core of abandoning your family because you're a workaholic is a fantasy. It's my life could be like this if only. It's I could feel this way about my life if only I had this kind of career advancement. It's just greed in a subtle and different form. So it might not look like cash, but it's going to look somewhere. It's going to show up somewhere. It's an inescapable reality that's affected all of us. And I know it's affected all of us. might sound like an overstatement, but it's not. It's not. At the heart of it is I want what you have. I want what you have, not what I have. It's the DNA of greed. And here's the danger in our, in our context. And I'm not, I am speaking Western context, right? European, American context right now. But I, I want to speak specifically to our sojourn context, to our height context, to you. The, the, the danger, uh, the danger is that what, what we call success, what we call drive, what we call achievement might actually be greed running wild in our life. And I know that's incredibly unpopular here. It might be greed running wild in your life. And we actually applause it. This is the second reason uh, that our parishes are so important, that it is a cultural blind spot that has bled into our lives. And I know that it's created a blind spot in my own life because I'm a product of my culture. You're a product of your culture. And in our parishes, in these communities of men and women, our blind spots get exposed. Our our blind spots get revealed. All of a sudden, what was blind to us gets put out in front of us. This 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 is the work of community. This is what happens that the cultural blind spots that we have get revealed and get exposed in the context of community where our heart level motivations like that that thing that actually makes you tick like not not the thing that you come here on a sunday and you say this is what makes me tick the actual thing that makes you tick like that thing on tuesday morning when you wake up that you're always excited about that thing that motivates you day in and day out that thing that truly makes you tick in the context of community, it gets revealed. In the rhythms of life in a neighborhood parish, they get revealed and they get put up in front of us. And it can be absolutely brutal. It can be painful. I don't love it, but I need it. I need it because when I do, when, when my blind spots get revealed to me, I have a chance to step into the deep waters. And when we have a chance, when we step into the deep waters together, We have a chance to live out uh, what happens in verse 33. 
Verse 33, it says, And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. This is uh, fascinating to me. It, when, I, when I read this uh, a couple weeks ago, starting to study for today, when I read this, the resurrection just leapt off the page to me. And here, here's why it leapt off the page to me. I would have never thought that the resurrection is what was being testified to or validated through the life of this community. I would have, never, I would have thought these guys are living sacrificially, and so the cross, the great sacrifice of God, would be what's being revealed and evidenced in their life, right? 1 Corinthians 5, 7, for Christ has been sacrificed. This, this sacrificial living, I thought, would have evidenced the sacrifice of Christ. Um, Christ. But it says the resurrection, and, and I want to know why, and so I'll tell you why. Here's why I think. I think there's actually multiple layers of reasons. I'm going to give you one of them. In, in the cross, it appeared, it appeared that death lorded over Jesus. In the cross, it appeared that death lorded over Jesus. And in the resurrection, it's revealed that Jesus is Lord over death. You see, the resurrection reveals and evidences the lordship of Christ. And we all have functional lords, every one of us. We have a functional lord that governs our life. This functional lord that gets determined by us which, by the way, you, you know that, right? You, you know that you have, a, uh, you have a functional Lord in your life. You, you have a, a, a Lord that you have granted authority in your life, and you've actually chosen that Lord. Like You've chosen what it is that has authority and sway over your life. And in the resurrection, this Lordship of Christ that gets put on display, how we handle our money, how you handle your money, how we as a community handle our money reveals and reflects the Lord of our life. Like we, we can talk a lot about Jesus being the functional Lord of our life. And I think our pocketbooks reveal, along with our calendars, the true Lord of our life. And I, I don't know that there's a more convicting statement for me to say to me. Like, I, I know when I open up my checkbook, I, I don't know, we don't use a checkbook anymore, but when I open up online and I look at my money, I know it reveals my true motivations and it reveals my true heart. And I need the Lord to continue to purge me and make me more like Christ so that Christ's Lordship becomes the Lord of my life because our calling is to take our functional Lord's and sit them under the lordship of Christ so that he would become the functional Lord of our life. This is the third reason that, um, if I could give you another one, why parishes are so incredibly important. That inside of our parishes, we learn to live out Jesus' lordship over our life. We learn to live out the lordship of Christ over our functional lords in our life. And when we do, when we learn to live this out together, uh, we hit verse 34. I think the most challenging statement uh, in, the, in the Bible. It's in many churches, including us. Verse 34 and 35. There is not a needy person among them. Stop. 
this new community, this church, this people gripped by Jesus, it says there was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. And so here we're, we're back to um, prescriptive, descriptive, and uh, this is certainly not, cannot be prescriptive, uh, prescribing that we sell our houses and lay them at the apostles' feet, right, for obvious reasons. I don't own land or a house. The apostles aren't alive anymore. So this is not prescriptive. Also, again, later we see houses being used strategically. There's no rebuke later in the New Testament anywhere for owning a home. This is not prescriptive. This is not go sell your house and your land, get a one-bedroom apartment. Ask Heights Church of Christ if you can live here. That's not what it's saying. It's not this text. So we're back to the gospel principle, that, that gospel principle of generosity of heart and soul overflowing in our generosity of possessions to one another. And so if we ask, what, what then does it look like? So if we take this 34 and 35 uh, to, to live this out, what does it look like in the life of sojourn? What, what did it look like then? What should it look like now? So most commentators, when they, when they read this, because of the grammar and the context, uh, uh, if, if I could be a language nerd, the, the verbal forms that happen in this passage, along with the context of the passage, they put them together and they say this was not a one-time event, right? So in, uh, in the original text, there, there's ways of saying this event happened and it's a one-time event. And then there's ways of saying this event happened and it was an ongoing activity. This is talking about an event that happened that was an ongoing activity. And so they interpret it this way. They, they say that, um, that what was happening was that the contribution, the rate of contribution was as needs came up. So as a need was arisen, as a need came up, they met the need. That's how it happened in this day. And so here's, here's Luke to us. Here's Luke to sojourn. You'd say to us that out of your faith in Christ, so give your heart and soul to one another. So see the generosity of the Father in sending the Son for you, uniting you together, that it would overflow in the generosity of possessions, that your possessions would reflect the Lordship of Christ over this community. And in real life, what it looks like is that we don't have... I, I need our Sojourn members to hear this. If you came in and you're visiting, so glad you're here. If you're interested in, in being a part of this community, I want you to know this is the kind of community that we want to be. I need you to hear this. It means that in our community, in this church family, we don't have people living in abundance while others live in need. It means that we don't have men and women overflowing in abundance while others can't eat in our midst. This is, by the Lord's grace, the kind of people we are, we will be, and we will continue to become. Overflowing 
out of our unity of heart and soul into generosity of possessions with one another so that our community would reflect the lordship of Christ over us. That as the Father has been abundantly generous with us in sending his Son to meet our greatest need, we would then in turn be generous with our possessions to meet the needs of one another inside of our community. That is the kind of people we will be and become as the grace of God sustains us to be that kind of people. Because the degree to which we are generous reflects the degree to which we think the Father has been generous to us in sending the Son. It's a mirror of how captivated we've been by Jesus. And when we live, when we live this text, when we live this text, we become a lived reflection of what's to come. This passage, this passage is a, it's really a partial fulfillment of of something that happened in Deuteronomy 15, where there's this prophecy about the the sabbatical year, this year of rest, where it says there'll be no poor among you. And then we look at the new heavens and the new earth, and we see that in the new heavens and new earth, the things that bring about pain, crying, tears, death are no more. And when we live like this, we live both that partial fulfillment and we live as a lived reflection of what's to come. And so, and so, as this kind of people, as this kind of people, that every time, every time we meet a need in a parish, every time someone comes inside of one of our neighborhood parishes and says, hey guys, man, I, I lost my job and I'm, I'm, I'm going to have a hard time paying the bills or, and I've got this debt that popped up and I'm struggling and I need this uh, to eat. Every time we meet that need, we are not simply meeting a need. We are, and it's beautiful, but we are not simply doing that. We are putting the Lordship of Christ in the resurrection on display. We are living who we will be in the new heavens and new earth today. We don't just pay bills to pay bills. We do it because we've been called to be a living reflection of the new heavens and new earth as they broke in at the resurrection. It's who we are. It's who we will be by the grace of God. And at the core of it, at the core of it is a community of men and women who believe that Christ has met our deepest need, and so we are free to meet the needs of one another. We are free from the grip of possessions. And I, I want to say this. This is kind of how I want to land the plane, if I if, if I can. I, I want to say this. I've been here 10 months. If you don't know, I'm, I'm from Houston. We were gone for eight years. Uh, I came in 10 months ago. been here for about 10 months-ish. I, if you're looking at Sojourn, you're curious about Sojourn, I, I think to our family, I, I think we do this incredibly well. I, I've actually never seen a community of men and women who do this as well as we do. It's been a thing of beauty to watch. It has been absolutely glorious to get to watch and to see. Um, we, we are not perfect. We are not even close to perfect. But it has been a joy to watch us love one another, take care of one another, enjoy one another, delight in one another, provide for one another. And what if... What, like, what if we just kept doing it? Like, wh- like, what if it wasn't a seasonal thing? 
But for the next 20 years, that was the testimony of sojourning. What, what, if, what if that's what people knew about us? What if, what if what they didn't know was just hospitality? What if they didn't just know, I don't know, you name it. What if they knew that we were a group of men and women who so loved one another, who'd so given our heart and soul to one another, that we provided for one another, that we lived that kind of community? Like what would be the testimony of our church family? What would it be and say to the heights? Like what might our neighbors think? You see, we, we are passionate. We are passionate about what we call parish saturation. And it drives us. This leadership development is not simply leadership development for leadership development's sake. We want to be great at developing leaders so that we can multiply new parishes who multiply new parishes who multiply new parishes who multiply new parishes until the day when our neighborhood and then our city one day is saturated with neighborhood parishes so that every man, woman, and child has access to this kind of community. This kind of local church family where the resurrection of Christ, this living Christ is actively on display and they can walk into an imperfect community of men and women and see the, this foreshadow of what life is going to be like one day. Like parish saturation is not parish saturation for saturation's sake. It's because there are men and women all around us. There are neighbors all around me who I desperately want and we desperately want to have access into this kind of community. And the root of it is, the root of it is, a gospel principle that sits underneath it. That they've given their heart and soul to one another to the degree that their generosity has overflown into possessions as they meet every need. And when you step into a parish, when you step into one of these neighborhood parishes, that's what you're stepping into. You're not just stepping into this group of people who are there to meet your relational needs. That they are. It's just not all they're there for. You're stepping into this group of men and women who are there to put the community that is to come on display for our neighborhood and for our city. I can't think of a more glorious calling than that. Let's pray.